Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Ask Katie Anything. I'm your host, licensed marriage and family therapist, Katie Morton. I'm so glad that you're here. Today we have nine questions and without further ado, let's just jump right in. Now question number one says, hi Katie, is it normal to feel like sessions go by incredibly fast? It takes me a little while to open up and feel comfortable and ready to talk about the quote unquote hard stuff within sessions. That by the time I feel like we're getting into it, the session's already over and we're wrapping up and it's time for me to go. And I'm left feeling like I just wasted another session. I thought this was a great question and I'll speak on two kind of two views of this, okay? Number one, yes, I've been in therapy myself and sometimes I feel like sessions just fly by. Um, usually for me, it's because there's just so much to talk about and I'm just talking and talking and I look at the clock and I'm like, I have like a minute left, you know? So I feel that. I also know that for some of us, it can take us a while just to like get there, um, meaning like calm down, be present, be able to share. So I have a couple of thoughts, okay? Number one is that I encourage you to get to the office if you can, if this is in person, I'm hoping that it is, get to the office a little early. And the reason for this is that it does take us some time to like arrive, I have noticed this, even this sounds silly to compare it, but even with my yoga classes, if I'm running late and rushing, I feel frantic. I feel anxious. I'm tense. And it takes me longer to like get into the zone and actually enjoy myself and relax, which is kind of the whole reason I go to yoga is to like feel good mentally, right? So there's that piece. Then, you know, the, when it comes to therapy, obviously seeing our therapist and talking, it's going to take us a little time to kind of arrive. But I think if we get to the office earlier, even if we're just in the waiting room, we can kind of mentally prepare. And that could potentially speed up our ability to open up. And I'm not talking, you know, get to the therapist's office like an hour before, unless you need that time. And if so, then we need to schedule that in. But I'm thinking, you know, maybe like 20 minutes, 15, 20 minutes early. That could kind of help you relax, get there, and maybe feel a little bit more able to open up by the time your session arrives. My second thought is that it can be beneficial to do like a session and a half or a double session. I've had patients, tons of them over the years, go through periods where they need a, a like, instead of a 50-minute session, we do an hour and a half. That's like an hour, like what's that, six to 100 minutes? That's almost double, or it is double, I guess, like 90 minutes it's more time so that therefore we have more time to work because by the time we've opened up, we still have a half an hour left. So these are just 
thoughts I have, just ideas. You're going to have to figure out what works best for you, but those are just some of the, not the easiest ways, but just some simple things to consider. Um, Not every therapist has the availability for a double session, but you can ask them. I know also that can be cost prohibitive or maybe not covered by your insurance, but let's check up on those things because it's really, really, it's really common for us to need more time. Now, another potential option could be to try to do two sessions a week, meaning that, you know, we see our therapist on like Monday and Wednesday or Tuesday and Thursday or something like that so that we are able to kind of relax, get more comfortable, start opening up. I know it sucks when they're broken into two. That's why I really think like a double session would be better or a session and a half. I think that that could be a little bit more, I don't know, beneficial for you. But the fact that there's not as many days in between might make it better too. So talk to your therapist, let them know that they're, that you're experiencing this. You feel like you're never getting into things. It's hard for you to open up. It takes a little bit longer. Ask if they do, you know, a session and a half or they do double sessions. Ask how much that would cost. See if that's covered. Ask if they do two sessions a week. You know, see what your options are. Just let them know, hey, I feel like I'm never, I'm just not getting through stuff. Because that it can be common. Like I even, even have patients who feel like I talk about the stuff that's happening now and then our time is up. And so then I never get into the stuff that was bothering me. The whole reason I reached out for therapy, right? Could be like past issues in our relationships, could be trauma from childhood, could be anything, but we don't feel like we're ever getting there because we're just busy like treading water, keeping up. Does that make sense? And so it's really common. It's okay to ask them about it, to see what they can do. And you can brainstorm what you think would work best for you. Okay. Okay. Let's move on to question number two. This question says, why do I not feel allowed to take up space? God, I like this question. Physically, mentally, emotionally. I just feel hyper aware of being in the way. It's caused me to be a little obsessive about remaining small in all ways possible and enjoying the feeling of being empty. Sounds eating disorder driven. It also kind of leads to me feeling like I'm always doing something wrong, even if I'm just walking into the grocery store or a coffee shop or just doing normal, simple things that don't even really have a right or wrong to them. Thanks for all that you do, Katie. You're a national treasure. Oh, you're so sweet. Okay. I feel this personally on like a visceral level. And I've been working on it in my own journaling and my own therapy. And also, there are things I understand from being a therapist, right? So, when it comes to not feeling like we can take up space, like we don't have the right to be here, right? Or to be there. That can come from a lot of different places. Now, many of my patients have felt this way and it has affected their eating, right? When we feel like things are out of control, we control what we can, ourselves, our bodies. That can lead to restriction, to overexercise, all in the hopes of staying small and taking up the least amount of space, right? Incredibly common. Now, another piece can be the emotional space. Now, I find this often comes from, for myself personally, it comes out of my urge to people, please, because I feel like I'm so anxious that if someone else isn't happy or okay, then I can't be okay. And so I try to make everybody else happy first so then I can relax, which is why my therapist used to tell me that like people pleasing is kind of manipulative behavior. I know we think manipulation is always a bad thing. I'm not saying it's good, but I'm just saying it's it's adaptive for me. It was, I needed you to feel okay so that I could feel okay. So I was like manipulating you to help myself soothe. Does that make sense? I hope so. I know it's kind of convoluted there, but hopefully you got that. So that can make it hard for us to express any discontent. We can't take up space, quote unquote, emotionally because we're afraid 
and we're going to upset people. And then that upset's going to cause us more intensive upset. And we don't want to feel that, right? So we just try to like minimize and validate. I think that a lot of times also our struggle to take up space can come from trauma and shame. Like something's wrong with me. I'm broken. I don't want anybody to like see me. I don't want to be in the way for anybody because I already feel bad enough about myself. And then compounding. So this isn't to say that it's only a female problem, but let me just talk a little bit about that because it has a piece of this as well. I find as a woman, sometimes it can feel hard to take up space because, and this also might be the time I was raised um, and the way I was raised, like I was raised in, you know, kind of in Christianity where women are supposed to be like kind of seen, not heard. And you like, you know, do everything your husband wants you to do. Very old and antiquated ways. The reason I don't practice religion personally anymore. And this is no judgment on any of that, by the way. But sometimes there are messages, or a lot of times there have been messages in my life about being a woman, meaning I need to be smaller, I need to be less uh, reactive, I'm too emotional, right? Everything, I'm too much. I feel like I've heard that message a lot growing up that like I'm too much just being. And so that can make it feel like I shouldn't, I'm taking up too much space. I need to make myself smaller. And so I think there's a lot to this. And you, I don't know if any of that resonated with you. You'd know your story best. Um, but I think, unfortunately, a lot of us feel that way, that we don't think we have the right to speak up, to stand our ground, to share space with someone else. Like, I've talked with you guys a lot about the fact that, like, I'll apologize to someone for looking at the same thing in the grocery store aisle. I'm like, oh, excuse me, sorry. Like, as if I don't have the right to stand and look at the cereal as much as that other person. Like, that's stupid, right? But I... I do it even though I logically know it doesn't make any sense. I don't know why, you know, but I think it's part of that, like shame, blame, anxiety, people pleasing. If any of you have trauma in your past, it could be part of your fawn response. You know, we talk about fight, flight, freeze, and fawn is the fourth one we don't talk about, which is like an extreme form of people pleasing done with the hopes that the person who is harming us won't harm us anymore, right? So we automatically fawn and people please. And that's kind of how we feel safe and soothe and a huge piece and something, maybe I'll do an entire video about this, but something I've been like processing and mulling over personally is the fact that all of these like quote unquote maladaptive coping skills, you know, we talk about all the shit we do that's not good or it's not what we're supposed to do or we know it's not healthy for us, right? There's all that stuff and we kind of beat ourselves up about it all the time. I shouldn't be doing this. Why am I doing this? Blah, blah, blah. But the truth is we're just trying to soothe we're doing our best with what we have. It's like we look into our toolbox and we're like, God damn it. There's like a half-eaten candy bar and a rubber pipe. Those are not the tools I need, right? And we need, I'm like, I need a screwdriver. There's nothing there. And so we use what we can to do our best. And our best might not make sense to others. It might not be effective or work in the way that it should. But to us, it kind of feels right a little bit. And it's all we have. We're doing the best, right? We're using what we got in our toolbox. It's not our fault. It's empty, you know, but we're going to take ownership now and we're going to fill it with things that are helpful. And that's really where the growth piece comes from. But I just really want to stop us from shitting on ourselves about using things that aren't healthy because it's not done with, I don't want to say like malicious intent because that sounds too aggressive, but it's like, it's not done on purpose to harm us like we know it's not good for us but it's like we don't have any other tools so we're like doing the best we can i want you just to think for a second tell yourself like i'm doing the best i can okay so all of that i know i got off on a little detour um but that's 
kind of where I think that take up space. I, hopefully that gives you some ideas. You will have to do some like internal research to figure out what resonates most with you. But I think it probably comes from some of those places. Now there was uh, two comments on this. And the first one says, I have this too. It also interferes with relationships because I feel like such a burden or a bad person when I take up any space in a relationship to the point where I sometimes get irritated or scared when people do nice things like make me a cup of tea or get me a present. I constantly think that when I do take up space that I've made it all about me and that I'm a bad friend, daughter, sister, etc. This even happens in therapy and doctor's appointments. It's so much worse right now because my friend who knows how insecure I am about this has pretty much told me that it's too much for her and I'm a burden on her. How can I stop feeling like this? Just be comfortable being myself or more confident that I'm not too much. First of all, your friend, I mean, I understand if it's too much, but I'm just so sorry. That sucks and that's really hard, especially when you're already dealing with this. Now, my thoughts would be that this, I I wonder, okay. And so I say my thoughts, I'm like, I'm curious, right? We have to be curious, not judgmental. I'm curious about whether or not you've been told that you're a bad friend, bad sister, bad daughter, or that you're too much. I think we hear these messages a lot growing up and in our childhood where we're like too emotional, we're too reactive, you're too, you have too much energy, you have too many opinions, you're too, uh, I don't know, stubborn, selfish. We could have heard I'm too something all throughout our lives growing up. And so we've internalized that. And I think that's the thing that for me now, that I'm working on in my own life is realizing what are those old stories that I'm applying to my life currently, right? What are old things I heard that I'm taking as fact now that aren't really helpful and don't serve me in the present? Now, I know that's a lot of work, trust me, I'm in the middle of it, but I think there's something to this whole conversation really goes back to that, this old belief or this old narrative about who we are, what our value is, what our role in the world is, and we don't feel very good about those things, right? We feel like we're too much. We feel like we shouldn't be seen. We shouldn't be heard. We shouldn't take up space. We feel like we're bad if we ask for help, if we accept help. If anybody's nice to us, we don't think we're deserving. And it can help us all to kind of figure out where that old story or where that old belief comes from. And that's why I love journaling because I'll pose questions to myself. I'm like, where do I think that comes from? And then I'll just think about it. Does it come from the fact that I had this like shitty boyfriend in high school who like lied and cheated? No, I don't really think, I think it was before then, right? So just kind of do some of your own research. Consider like things that you know were hurtful and did it happen before or after that? Do you remember feeling that way already? Yes, for me usually yes. Okay, so bad boyfriend in high school happened before then. And then you kind of track it back. I remember my softball coach yelling at me for saying sorry too much. I was in middle school. So just do some of your own recon. Consider the times that people told you stop saying sorry so much or you remember you like in your own person feeling like you were too much or too big or too whatever Um, or were you ever told you were too big for things or too much or like you're bad at this or how dare you, you know, ask for help or like, okay, so that's a piece. And then my brain just went to even with our parents. Did our parents have their own issues going on? And when we asked for like simple things like, hey, mom or dad, I'm hungry. Are you going to make dinner? And they were like, get out of here. You're always asking for something, right? Like, do we get reactions to basic childhood needs that were not healthy, that that kind of reinforce that belief that you're too much, that what your needs are aren't acceptable, that you don't have a right to exist? That whole 
that can happen and it, it's very detrimental and it's really damaging. And so we have to acknowledge or identify what those like thorns are from our past so we can pull them out. And it's going to take time and it takes a little bit of internal research. But I think to all the people who this question kind of resonated with, it's important to consider when it started and who's ever told you that you don't have a right to take up space. And it might not be not a right to take up space. It might be who's told you that you're too much or that you're not good enough, right? Those are like really deep and painful beliefs that make us feel like we can't, we don't deserve to be here. And that's a really painful thing to think about yourself. So pay attention to it. Let's figure out where it's coming from so we can work to kind of check our facts and like push that thorn out. Because it's not true, but we're not going to believe it unless we figure out where it's coming from. Does that make sense? We can't like take it apart or get rid of it until we understand it. Now, there was another add-on, which I've kind of already gotten into. It says, I don't believe, I don't feel like I belong on this planet. I apologize for every little thing. It's so easy for me to get inside my head and feel like no one cares about me. How do I learn to believe that I belong here and I don't have to self-harm or die? This is the the overarching belief here is this is shame-based. That something's wrong with us, that we're inherently bad or broken, that we don't deserve anything, right? Shame can come from a lot of places, but the most common place is trauma. I think shame can come from any kind of abusive relationship of any kind. It can come from um, repeated lack of self-confidence or having things not go our way. The person who asked this component of the add-on, that sounds shame-based and depression-based to me. And so my best advice to you is to challenge those beliefs and those thoughts, not with positive ones, but with bridge statements. Like I'm open to the fact that maybe Maybe Katie's right, and maybe we all deserve a little space in this world. Maybe I deserve less than others, but a little bit. Maybe. Maybe I could believe that. Or maybe, you know, it's possible that I'm not as shitty as I think I am. You know, we can use some of those kinds of things to move it in a better direction versus just letting these thoughts and beliefs run around in our head and taking them as fact because they're not fact. And then we can check facts if we want, if that helps. But overall, I think, especially for the last person who asked the question, please reach out to a therapist, get some extra support. We're going to need someone to help us challenge these thoughts, these beliefs, figure out where they come from. Medication might be helpful. You know, there are a lot of ways that we can kind of address this. And I just encourage you to take the time to figure it out without just taking those thoughts and beliefs and agreeing with them and making that your life, right? You deserve better than that. Trust me when I tell you, okay? Okay, let's move on to question number three. This question says, hello, Katie, as a therapist, when do you have the conversation with clients about seeking out a psychiatric consult to determine if medication is warranted? Is there a certain amount of time that you give traditional talk therapy to work before you do a certain level of symptoms that you look, oh, or sorry, the amount of time you give traditional talk therapy to work before you do, or a certain level of symptoms that you look for to determine that. Sorry about that, you guys. I know it probably varies from client to client, but just to sort of, I'm just sort of wondering what the general guidelines are. Okay, now, when it comes to medication, we find through research that therapy and medication working together give out the best outcome. Medication alone doesn't fix anything. Medication can poop out. We can uh, have to go off it because we're getting pregnant or it's, we don't like the side effects. That's not good. Medication doesn't really fix the problem. It's more like masking it, right? Therapy helps you work on the actual issue, understand it, quote unquote, fix it so that it doesn't bother us in the way it does anymore. 
maybe so that we don't even have to be on medication long term. For some of us, we will, but for some of us, we won't, right? And therapy can get us to a place where we can manage our symptoms better, regardless of whether we have to stay on the medication or not, okay? Now, when I have the conversation with my patients is honestly, if I feel like their symptoms are so intense, there's quite a few reasons, but number one, if their symptoms are so intense that they aren't able to really participate in therapy, let's say my patients are so anxious and so overwhelmed that they can't even open up in therapy. I would recommend it. If a patient is trying to do the homework and they just can't, and then they just feel overwhelmed, overstimulated, all the symptoms come up, whatever it is for them, psychiatric consult. Um, If I've been seeing a patient for a while and we've kind of plateaued and they're still not feeling good, psychiatric consult. Um, If I think, I suspect my patient has a mental illness that does best with medication, this could be something like any kind of psychosis or schizophrenia or um, bipolar disorder, or even my patients who've had children, like let's say they just had a baby and I'm worried about them, like their postpartum depression. That's something I, I hop on quick because when we have a young child depending on us, we need to make sure we can show up for them. And so I want to get that taken care of very quickly. Um, so just depending on what's going on and the symptoms that I see, I'm going to, you know, talk about them seeing a psychiatrist. I'm going to give them some referrals. We'll check their insurance. We'll go over lists together. But overall, the only reason I wouldn't, it's actually almost easier to ask, like, why wouldn't I? The only reason I wouldn't wouldn't uh, recommend or encourage someone to get a psychiatric consult to see someone would be because in our sessions, they're able to do the homework. Yeah, we have tough times. Things are hard to talk about. But overall, our level of functioning is is there. Like, I can show up for work or school. I'm engaging in my social life. I'm t- my hygiene is good. I'm taking care of myself, right? Like some of the basic things that we would look for are we're functioning there. And when you show up for therapy, you're able to participate and and do the homework for the most part. Again, no one's perfect. And I'm not looking for that perfection, but overall, I don't feel like things are getting worse. I don't feel like you're not able to do what you need to do. It's not affecting you financially or relationally. And I think we can work through it together. So that's the only reason I wouldn't recommend a consult. Because we have tons of medication options. We have tons of treatment options as a whole. And I really always want my patients to have like a holistic view, knowing that they can access all or any care that they need, right? Like I work um, a lot with eating disorder patients. So a dietitian recommendation or referrals, like 99.99% of the time I'm going to do that, right? And then also a psychiatrist. So I think for some reason we put seeing a psychiatrist as something that's like has to be real bad almost like the same way we do with therapy like I don't want to go see someone because I don't think I'm that bad yet I'm here to tell you that just like any illness we can suffer from the sooner we get help the better like if I don't treat my bronchitis and I let it go and then it turns into pneumonia that's way harder to get better from or way harder to treat than the pneumonia will be mental illness is no different if I'm suffering if I'm struggling Maybe my depression's like, oh, it's making it really hard for me to get to work. I don't need to wait until I can't get to work to reach out for help or until I feel suicidal. I should get help sooner. I should reach out for more support. I know easier said than done. Trust me, I know it's hard, but that's the real truth behind that, okay? Now, we have some comments on this. The first comment said, as a follow-up, if a client isn't making any progress but doesn't want medication... When you keep seeing them until they do start making progress or every once in a while continue to bring up medication as an option. Now, 
It depends. If a client isn't making progress and they aren't able to participate in therapy, I'll usually stop seeing them. And I don't mean that as like a shame on you. I mean it as if you're not benefiting, I don't want to take your money. I don't want to waste your time. If it's not working, I probably will give you some referrals to like higher levels of care or different types of therapists or something. Um, I've done that with a lot of patients where I'm like, we've been stagnant for a long time and, you know, we're not making progress. Now, it could be based on medication or not, but I would make that referral first. And if they're like, oh, I really don't want medication, we could try some other stuff. But then at the end, I might refer them out to a friend of mine who does EMDR or somatic experiencing like Dr. Alex Altman or any other person that I know because I, I have a person um, who used to work across the hall from me. She did like attachment-based work. I've referred a lot of people to her. So there's a lot of different types of therapists out there and I may want you to try that because stagnation in therapy is common every so often. But if we're just not making progress and it goes on for a long time, it starts to feel like a waste of your time and money. And it's not about like you're not doing well enough. That's not what's happening here. What it is, is like, like, let's compare it to physical health, right? So if a doctor is giving us an antibiotic and we're still sick, we're not getting better, they're going to need to upgrade what they're giving you, whether that means giving you a steroid or maybe you need to see a specialist, right? And that's essentially what's happening. If I'm trying to work with you and you're just not getting better and for whatever reason, could be that the homework I give isn't working for you, you're feeling too dysregulated, the depression is too intense, like it doesn't even matter. There's a ton of different reasons. I'm going to give you referrals or other options because that's the standard of care that needs to be met, right? I shouldn't keep seeing you if you're not getting better. That's actually unethical for me because you need to get better and you need to be offered the support and guidance that is best for you. Does that make sense? I hope so. Okay, now another question says, I have been into therapy for eight months for healing from trauma due to childhood sexual abuse, though my therapist hasn't confirmed that I have PTSD. You can ask them. He says I have many symptoms of PTSD and had twice suggested that I see a psychiatrist for medications for sleep and anxiety. However, I'm too tired to even see or too terrified to even see a psychiatrist. And the thought of getting a diagnosis and medications makes me so anxious that I told him I'm not ready or comfortable with that. He didn't force me and we're continuing our regular sessions. Is it necessary that one needs to take meds for trauma symptoms, especially if the symptoms just seem to worsen over time? I mean, necessary is a strong word, but the fact that they're getting worse than 100% medication can help. That's the thing about medication is it can bring our symptoms down so that we can actually participate in therapy and not have a panic attack, not dissociate, not feel completely dysregulated, right? Or our depression, it'll hold us out of our depression so it doesn't get so intense and so heavy that we can't get out of bed. All of it is going to be necessary for us to get better, but does it mean that it has to be medication and it has to be for this? Not necessarily, but it sounds like you're having a hard time and your symptoms are getting worse. So I would encourage you to treat it more quickly. And obviously, you know, you're terrified to see a psychiatrist. My goal for if I was your therapist and that was the reason you didn't want to see someone is I would help you prepare for that appointment. Whether that means you bring a support person, you write down all of your symptoms, like There's a ton of different things that we can do to kind of get you ready for that appointment. Now, if the appointment is virtual, I've had patients take their appointments in my office so that I'm there with them, you know, and I'll even make it known to the psychiatrist, hey, just so you know, I'm here, Um, you know, we'll let them know when we're making the appointment. There's a lot of ways you can get the support that you need so we can get you through that, you know, assessment. Um, 
but yeah, it's not it's not always necessary. But if your symptoms are getting that bad, I would say it's worth looking into, and it could be important and imperative for your recovery. Okay, question number four. Now this one has a lot of add-ons. The question itself is, why do I feel so embarrassed that things happened to me? When I try to talk in therapy, it feels impossible. And I'm going to read through all of these add-ons because they're all pretty much connected. The comment says, I feel the same. I feel like I have so much deep shame with me. Shame is quite, it's just this whole episode feels very shame-based. I have so much deep shame with me. So any help with feeling shame? In my case, I know it comes from sexual related trauma. Thank you for all that you do. Next comment. I'm too embarrassed to go to therapy. I don't want to go because my therapist will know I'm a loser with zero friends and have a terrible gambling problem. I know I need help with my social anxiety. So maybe I would have friends and need, um, I need help to stop gambling, but I don't want to tell a therapist how pathetic my life is. I wonder if this is all just all, if this all just goes back to social anxiety. Another person writes, I also feel embarrassed, especially when talking about self-harm. Since last September, I started this thing where they harm themselves. Then um, if it still didn't give me the feeling that I needed, I'll try to do some more self-harm. Usually the marks will leave or last only a day, but recently I've started to, it started to last longer. I don't do it often though. And doing this doesn't necessarily make me feel good. I just have the urge. I shared this with my therapist three weeks ago, showed her pics of it and felt embarrassed. I don't want to talk about it ever again. She wouldn't say, or she wouldn't know if I don't say anything. So why would I? Hmm. My question would be, then why are we in therapy? But we'll get into this. One of her questions was, when did you start self-harm? I told her, but then I spent too much time thinking about it. Is it actually self-harm? I feel like self-harm is a big word. And I didn't expect that she would use it. She's on vacation now, and I don't think I'll be able to see her until next month. So should I discuss this with her later? It didn't sit right with me. Short answer is yes, but we'll get into this. Final add-on. Unfortunately, I feel the same. I'm certain that I've blown what happened way out of proportion. And I feel even more shame about being in therapy for so long. I'm sure there's someone needing my spot who could actually utilize the time effectively clearly I'm not doing something right. It doesn't help to hear things like I'm operating from a space of learned helplessness. Oh, but okay, we'll get into this. Or how I'm still in the victim role. When I was raped, I was helpless. And if that were to happen again, I likely would lose the fight. I have detached from my kids. Terrible, I know. Background. I was raped in the midst of a four-year legal battle that ensued because I dared to report sexual abuse my daughter told me about. I'm so sorry. I lost custody for a bit, but she's home now. So yeah, my shame is pretty much my only companion. Why does detachment from my kids mean that I'm in the victim role? Along with shame, I'm so angry, like all the time. And I'm disgusted with myself. I can't even look in the mirror. I actually used a dry erase marker to black out the mirror where my face would be. I'm not a victim. I hate that word. I just can't bring myself to do anything constructive in my own life. I mean, why? I feel like a piece of trash. So why waste the time? Okay. There's a lot to talk about here. Now, the embarrassment that we feel in therapy is understandable and common. And the reason for that is that we don't usually show our icky, dirty, hidden, embarrassing, shame-filled bits with anybody, right? And when we go in to see somebody and they ask us questions about our personal life and they're like in there and they just ask directly, like some of my patients will say, well, they're like shocked that I asked it so straight up. Because I do. I ask my patients, have you ever self-injured, like scratched? But, you know, I give a bunch of examples. Have you ever felt suicidal, had thoughts of taking your own life, even passive thoughts? You know, I want them to tell me about it so I know what to check in on. Have you ever not ate or overate and was a way to cope? 
I'm checking in on all that stuff. When someone does that, because uh, that's not going to happen in our regular life, I would assume, for any of us. I know none of my friends are going to ask me that, and they're therapists. <laughs> but therapists just do that, like, bah, and they get right into that spot of you, that piece of you that feels very not okay, very uh, should be hidden. There's a lot of embarrassment, guilt, shame, all wrapped up into those, I just call them my icky parts. And the urge to lie or minimize or invalidate is strong. I've even um, told my therapist like, oh, no, no, I, I don't remember what the question was, but she'd ask something pointed about, oh, I think it was like anger in my household. Like, has anybody ever expressed it? And I was like, oh, yeah, yeah. Like, mm-hmm. And then like legitimately 30 seconds later, you guys, I was like, that's a lie. And so I told her, I was like, I lied. I'm sorry. She's like, that's okay. I was like, no, I don't know why I lied. I just, I felt uncomfortable. I felt like then I should be embarrassed because like, why didn't my family do that? We should express anger healthily. I'm like, I know better than that. I'm a therapist. She's like, you didn't when you were a kid, you know? So the urge to lie is strong. The embarrassment is heavy. The shame is heavy and it runs deep. And that's why we can struggle to open up and not feel embarrassed in therapy. Now, the main question about being embarrassed that things happen to us, that's our shame story. That's instead of us acknowledging, hey, this thing took place and it sucked and it was hurtful, we think something's wrong with us that could have caused it. Or because our abuser told us some fucking lies like, oh, you know, you're the one that brought this on. I wouldn't even do this if you didn't deserve it. You know, if you tell anybody I'm going to hurt you, I'll hurt your family, all these lies and, and shit to keep us quiet, to shut us up, to make us compliant. All that abusive language messes with us. And then we start to think, oh, I guess it was my fault. Oh, I guess, why did I go back to that babysitter even though they abused me? Like, why did I do that, right? It can be such a mind fuck. And they do that on purpose. It's abuse. It's abusive. It's manipulative. And it leaves us like spinning. And so my encouragement for all of you, if you're feeling like, I don't know why I'm having such a hard time. Why am I so embarrassed? Why is this so difficult? Why, like shaming ourselves even more. I want you to take a breath. I want you to go find a photo of yourself from the time when something bad happened to you. If you don't know and it all feels like a blur, just find one of you young around like eight or 10 and just look at that person for a little bit and remember what resources you had access to. Could you have not gone, gone back to that babysitter? Probably not. If you were afraid they're going to hurt your family, then you might not have even told anybody about it. Or if you were embarrassed of what happened, you didn't tell anybody about it because you don't know any better. Consider where you were at in your life at that time. What did you think about? What did you focus on? What was going on? What did you, again, resources? Did you have money, a car? Could you leave? Did you feel like you could leave? Even if you had the ability, did you feel like you could? Be honest with yourself because those shame thoughts tend to swirl and like, I don't know, live in the belief that everything is our fault because something's wrong with us and nothing's wrong with you. Just usually from a young age, we were told that the way that we feel and the things that we experience and our memory of events and how, again, how things felt to us is wrong and that it was incorrect and that we're overreacting or we're remembering it completely wrong. That never happened, right? Gaslighting, manipulation, and so, of course, we're going to feel embarrassed and we're going to feel like we should have done something different. That's why inner child work can be so incredibly healing. Also, journaling about a little bit. Put that photo of yourself up where you see it regularly. So you can look at him or her and say, like, 
I'm so sorry that that happened to you. I'm sorry I let you down. It's okay to say that. It's kind of part of that inner child work where we have letters back and forth. You know, if I was there now, I would beat the shit out of that guy or that woman. I would tell him what's up. I'd leave, right? I'd get you and we'd leave. But we have to remember that when we're young, we don't have a lot of options. We don't have a lot of resources. And unfortunately, when we have repeated trauma, so the person was talking about like the learned helplessness, I know that phrase can kind of suck, but learned helplessness is really that like freeze response. No, if we fought back and tried to do things in our life, we were hurt more. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. So we just laid there. We couldn't fight back. We were afraid it'd make it worse because it has. We're adaptive creatures, for better or for worse. And if something keeps getting worse, we're like, I don't know why I'm fighting it because I think that's what's making it worse. There's actually a study you can look up called the Skinner Box. It's Skinner, S-K-I-N-N-E-R. Now, it's not an ethical study that could be completed now. I think it was like in the 50s, 60s. Anyway, essentially what the Skinner Box proves is learned helplessness. When the, and this is going to sound terrible, just hang with me. When the rats got electric shocks, these little, and not, not going to kill them, just little, right? When they got those, no matter where they were in their box, they just laid down. It's that learned helplessness. That's where that comes from. That's why we know that from that horrible, horrific, could never be repeated study. But we as humans are that way too. If no matter what we do, and we keep trying to fight, we've tried fight, flight, we freeze. We just, we can't, right? There's nothing else to do. So I think, you know, acknowledging that, that no matter what you did, things just got worse. And that's hence why the shame thoughts are so strong. It must be something wrong with me. I'm here to tell you that's not true. Find a therapist that can help you check your facts and go through essentially all of the abusive ways you've been treated and the people who did that to you. Because again, we don't always have options. We don't feel like we have any resources, especially if we're in an abusive relationship. They can control all the money. They can isolate us from people who could support us. You know, let's, let's check some of those facts. And then to the person who asked about self-harm, you know, again, when we're minimizing and invalidating ourselves and, and thinking that something's just wrong with us, we're never going to believe that what we're doing is, is big enough or bad enough. And I'm here to tell you that any kind of harm that you're doing to yourself as a way of soothing and feeling like an urge is self-harm and does need to be talked about. And since it didn't sit well with you, I would definitely bring that up with your therapist again. Okay. Okay. Let's move on to question number five. Now, this is a short question. This question says, what are the signs of repressed sexual abuse? Now, there are a ton of them, but there are a lot that as therapists we look for. And the first one I look for is any signs of regression. Regression means going backwards. Now, this would mean that we are not, I mean, we could be a child still, like, but we're past the age of being potty trained, okay? As long as we are past the age and we've been potty trained, but we regress to not being potty trained, okay? That would be a sign. Another sign would be acting childlike. I've had, you know, women in their 20s talk baby talk to me in session. That's a sign to me that I, and again, when I say signs, it's like red flags and they need to be explored more because as we all know, symptoms can come from a ton of different places. And we just want to make sure that we are able to identify the actual place without putting any thoughts into our patients' heads 
I'm not telling you that I think it's this, right? I'm just being curious, not judgmental as we try to figure it out. So regression is always going to be my number one. The second would be having like extreme emotional shifts. Now, a lot of people would say, well, that's like borderline personality disorder, or that could be part of, you know, narcissism or any kind of number of things. Um, Yes, it could be part of that. It could also be part of PTSD because we have repressed sexual abuse. And so when we have these like extreme emotional responses, akin like to the term like overreaction, I know that we give that a bad rep, but it's not a bad term. It really just means the reaction that I'm giving is more than the situation itself warrants. And so that overreaction to in my therapist brain is like, oh, here's a little flag. We should dig into that and figure out where that's coming from, right? Then also if I find um, my patients have like these kind of unexplained or strong reactions to specific people, places, scents, tastes, any kind of thing, like all of a sudden, again, overreactions, we're looking for those. Because if you have a strong reaction, that can tell me that there's some kind of trauma and that's what you're you're triggered and we need to figure out why and where it comes from, right? Um, also, you know, attachment issues can be indicative of having any kind of trauma, but sexual abuse in our past. Um, always feeling on edge, hypervigilance, that's something I'd look out for. Um, maybe oh, a difficulty dealing with like stressful situations, difficulty with conflict. Those can all be, again, a ton of these could be explained by other things, but these are just things that I would look for. Um, anxiety and depression also kind of go hand in hand with PTSD and sexual abuse in our past. Um, difficulty with intimate relationships, not wanting to let people get close, feeling better, kind of that, again, like attachment, being more of the avoidant type of person. Um, yeah, those are all kind of signs that I would say are, could be part of past sexual abuse. Okay. Now let's move on to question number six. This question says, hey, Katie, I think I might have PTSD, but it feels so dramatic to say that. Look at that minimization. It's hard because I don't think anyone else can see it and people will just think that I'm overreacting. My trauma, if we're going to call it that, is from COVID. I was stuck overseas and a lot of stuff from that is still really difficult. I think I have quite a few signs like what I think are flashbacks and panic attacks. I also have insomnia. And apparently I sound like I'm in distress while I'm asleep and I don't know if that could be part of it. You could be having night nightmares. I'm currently trying to get into a long-term therapy or counseling situation. I know that I can't self-diagnose anything, but I was wondering if you had any tips on how to deal with this at the moment or why it's so difficult to properly admit how hard things are. Also, are problems sleeping possibly part of PTSD? Thanks for everything. Of course. Yes, sleep problems can be part of PTSD. Really, really common. Nightmares, night tears, um, having like flashbacks in your sleep where you're essentially like re-traumatizing yourself while you sleep that can all be part of PTSD. I don't think I have any patient who has PTSD who doesn't report at least some difficulty sleeping. Um, so yes. Now, I think the trauma from COVID is way more intense than any of us can even acknowledge. I think we were all traumatized. And I, I don't say that to minimize any, anyone's experience, but I had friends whose you know grandparents passed, like even my own grandma passed away from COVID. But like I have friends whose grandparents passed away from it and they couldn't see them. That's a trauma. You were stuck overseas. You probably wondered if you'd ever get back. We, I think the thing that makes us so resilient as humans is that we so quickly move past and try to quote unquote forget what it was like. But if we just put ourselves back there in like April of 2020, when we didn't know what the fuck was going on, everything was shutting down. 
people were dying. We couldn't go anywhere. Like we were in LA and everything. It was just like, and we didn't know, Sean and I were like Clorox wiping all of our, our like any uh, groceries that we got. We wiped our whole house. We were like, if people delivered things, we were like afraid to get close to them, right? We didn't even know. It was so scary. You didn't know if that was going to kill you. Like I still have friends with long COVID, right? Shit's, it was crazy. So don't minimize your experience. That was real. We all went through it. And yours is particularly traumatizing because you were stuck overseas. My mom was in Mexico. It wouldn't come back early. You guys, I could not, I cannot tell you how uh, annoyed slash frustrated slash terrified I was that she would get stuck there. She was on vacation. She's like, well, I have another week. You know, things, it was scary and it's really difficult. And I just bring that up to say like, again, almost like the inner child work, we have to take ourselves back there to remember just how hard it was and how little resources we had. COVID was that way too. It happened to all of us. We didn't know what we didn't know. It was terrifying. We heard all these mixed messages from people and things and everything, you know, it was scary. So yes, it sounds like you, you possibly do have PTSD anxiety and difficulty sleeping. I have videos if you want to go to my main YouTube channel. Um, just look up, you know, Katie Morton PTSD. I have videos about the diagnosis itself if you want to kind of walk through the symptoms. But my encouragement for you now at the moment and ways to help you better cope, I cannot encourage you enough to journal every morning. Now, I know that sounds like a lot and you're like, that's a big ask. I'm not saying for like hours. I'm saying five, 10 minutes. You can do a whole 30 minutes if you have the time write about what you're feeling. Just get it out. Don't read it back. Don't, I don't care if it's spelled correctly. I don't know if it makes, I don't care if it makes sense. I don't care if I can read it. Just get it out of your head. And then I also encourage you to do body shakes. When you start to feel yourself getting queued up more and more and more, let's shake it out. Also, you can dip your face in some cold water that not only triggers our vagus nerve, but it also triggers what's known as the diving reflex. It's, it's good for our system. It can like shake us out of that queued up trauma response. Give yourself an opportunity to reset when you need to. And those things for right now, I think can hopefully keep your head above water until we can get you in to see someone so that you can start working through this and processing it through. Don't feel like your trauma is less than someone else's. For some reason, we always feel like, oh, that can't be trauma. Trauma happens when what's happening to us is too much for our brain and body to process at the moment. We are terrified. We fear for our safety or the safety of someone else. And we're we're overwhelmed, right? We become traumatized. And if that traumatization that we've experienced isn't something we can process on our own, even after the fact, we slowly develop PTSD. Unfortunately, it's very common and it's, it's it can be debilitating. So give yourself a little love, do some things, take care of yourself as you are experiencing all these symptoms. And trust me when I tell you that with the right help, it can and will get better. Okay. Okay. Let's move on to question number seven. It says, Katie, my question is about dealing with anxiety surrounding medication. I've recently been prescribed um, cetraline or sertraline. I'm probably saying that wrong. After being in therapy for seven months for my anxiety and my depression, but ironically, the stress about side effects and withdrawal later has made me more anxious. This has also led me down a spiral of self-doubt surrounding the realness of my conditions. Do you have any tips on how to manage these thoughts? Thanks for all that you do. Okay, so you've been prescribed. I have a couple of thoughts and ideas. Number one, let's check our facts and talk to our therapist about it, okay? Um, I'm hoping that you're seeing a therapist. Yeah, you said after being in therapy for seven months, I hope you're still in it, I'd assume so. Let your therapist know that this is coming up. Have them walk you through the symptoms and why they believe that you have anxiety and depression. 
That's an easy way to check our facts. You can even watch my old videos where I walk you through the diagnostic criteria. It's a good way to check those facts instead of letting our brain run amok, right? Because anxiety, it can do this to us, unfortunately. So let's check those facts. If you are able, make another follow-up appointment with your prescribing doctor, your hopefully a psychiatrist. Talk to them about this. I'm having these like self-doubt thoughts. I'm thinking that I'm making this into a bigger deal than it is. Another great way to check our facts. Don't just let these like worry thoughts run away. I don't know if you've t- taken the medication, but I would encourage you to start taking it because it could make you feel better and take away essentially this anxiety, which is what's spurring all this worry. It's it's worry thoughts, really. Um, and the self-doubt's coming from your depression. Honestly, it's it's almost like as a therapist, I'm like, I kind of giggled when I read this question because I was like, wow, your symptoms are really strong. That's why they prescribed you the medication. These are the symptoms of anxiety and depression, like playing out, you know? And so check your facts with your therapist, check your facts with yourself. Like I said, I have videos about this so you can watch it and you can be like, yeah, yeah. And be honest, pretend that you are like examining you, like you're the doctor that you're going to see. Take yourself out of your emotion mind for a minute in your worry mind. And just does that symptom track? Yes? Okay, next one. Does that symptom track? Because it definitely does. And checking the facts can really help. It also could help to play it out, like play out worst case scenario. Okay, let's say I have bad side effects on the medication and I have to stop it. Okay. What if I have withdrawal? Okay, that lasts for a couple of weeks, but the doctor can help. Okay. Like what's the worst case scenario? What's the best case scenario? And then tell me what's the most likely. And then if you find these worry thoughts, just keep continuing. You're like, fuck, 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 fuck. I mean, breathing exercises can help. Not, I don't find the counting ones to be that great, but the breathing in the double breath where we go as full as you can get it, really, really slow breath out. It calms our system. That can be helpful too. But I also find that if the thoughts just keep swirling, we need to do some thought stopping. And we find there's like two things that I would say are helpful when it comes to thought stopping, okay? Tip number one is that we just acknowledge the thoughts and we call them what they are. Oh, that's just a worry thought. I don't have any fact to support it. Oh, that's another worry thought. We acknowledge them and we allow them to be. Tip number two is that instead of ruminating on those thoughts and letting them take us into a trip we don't want to get on, we pull our brain to a really, really happy memory. Now, if we don't have a happy memory because depression has taken its hold, we can make something up. What would be your dream vacation? Where do you really want to go? Or if you have the memory, what was it so great about that day? It doesn't have to be a big thing. It can be like, remember I had that wonderful day where I just walked around town. I had nowhere I had to be. I popped in and got a coffee and you know, whatever it is. Tell me about it. Tell yourself about it in as much detail as possible. Like what were you wearing? What did you smell? What did you see? What did you taste, right? Do all of that. So you can feel yourself back in that memory. And then you'll notice, I'm not so anxious anymore. My thoughts stopped spiraling. So those are just some of the ways that you can better manage. Um, But let your therapist and your psychiatrist know that you're experiencing these types of symptoms so that they can help you fact check a little. Sometimes we need a little support, right? Someone trying to, we need someone to help us shake out of it. Because clearly that's your anxiety and depression talking. Moving on to question number eight. This question says, I know a person who says people who are real. I know a person who says people who are really depressed never are released from it, but learn to cope with it. I'm curious, what are your thoughts on being cured from depression? 
Now, and I'm going to read the add-on because these both go together. The answer is the same. It says, as an add-on, what about trauma? Can therapy be successful and still some unhealthy behaviors or negative thoughts remain? Is there a 100% healing, especially when it comes to patterns that come from childhood or therapy is mostly about better man or is therapy mostly about better managing? Okay. When it comes to mental illness, it's no different than physical illness, meaning that we can heal from what happened. Our depression can, for the most part, go away, meaning we don't even feel it anymore. Has anybody, so I've had like pain in my lower back, probably from sitting all day doing my job. Um, Years ago, I pulled a muscle in my shoulder. And for the most part, like my shoulder, I went to physical therapy. I got my acupuncture. It's like going to therapy, seeing a psychiatrist. I did all those things. The pain went away. But every once in a while, if I get really tired, like let's say I've been working my arms a lot, like when we were moving, I was moving things a lot and I could feel that old twinge. It was right there. Also my low back. If I don't do my stretches, like after this, I'm going to do some yoga. If I don't do that, I will feel it and it will wake me up in the middle of the night. So therapy is no different. Trauma, depression, it's no different. When we work on ourselves and we go to therapy, we can get resolution of our symptoms, meaning they go away, right? Just like I catch a cold, the symptoms go away. I'm all better. Ta-da. But if I don't take care of myself, I get really run down. I'm, I'm stressed out. Something crazy's happened in my life. I haven't been sleeping well, right? That cold can come back. Or like I always got strep throat as a kid, I will get a sore throat. So we always have like a, what I would call a sensitivity or a vulnerability to a specific symptom of our mental illness or a type of mental illness as a whole. And when things get bad and we don't take care of ourselves and we don't do all the things that we know we need to do, like I don't do my yoga, right? Those symptoms can come back. Now, will they come back like fully? Like, Hopefully not because we recognize them and we also have tools to better manage. And so there's never like, a, oh, you're cured. No one would ever say that with mental illness. You're cured of your mental illness. It's more like, you don't have the symptoms anymore because you're managing it. And we're just going to keep an eye on it. And if things get really stressful, let's say you lose a loved one, let's say you have to move or you lose your job or something, right? We have something, an event happen that's super overwhelming, then those symptoms can come back. But we know we can manage them. It's almost like I'm going to go on the antibiotic again and it'll go away. We can do that. So I don't believe, I mean, I guess they could say you're never really released from it. I feel like that's a very not to say dramatic, but it's a very negative view. I feel like that person's probably depressed because that's a very like, I don't know, like what's the point of it all? Kind of like a negative outlook on a situation, a very depressed view of mental illness. I would say that people who are depressed and have depression will always have a sensitivity or a vulnerability to depressive symptoms, but they can be 100% managed and potentially never affect them again. Just like you may never get, you know, uh, bronchitis again. But if that's the weakness in your body, then when you catch a cold, it's most likely going to be a cough, right? Just like mine will be a sore throat. Does it mean that I never got rid of it? No, I got rid of it, but it can come back. Just like anything, we have to take care of ourselves. Our mental health is the same as our physical health, okay? And trauma is no different than depression. It's just managing those symptoms so that it doesn't really affect us in our day-to-day. It's almost like we kind of forget that it that was there. Like my shoulder, I forget that I have that that wound. But every once in a while, I'll feel it. Twink, twink. And I'm like, ooh. And I do my little exercises, you know, do my stretches. And it's better. Final question. Question number nine. It says, hi, Katie. Happy Thursday. Happy Thursday. It says, hope you're well. I am. Thanks. 
uh, says, my question is about childhood memories. I always thought that I had a great childhood, but I started therapy this year for my PTSD, not related to my childhood. And I've recently started remembering things that are making me reconsider whether my childhood was as lovely as I thought. I'm not even sure if these memories are real or whether my brain is making them up. I always wonder, I always want to ask this question because a lot of us think that like my brain would make them up. What would be the benefit of your brain making up something upsetting? Our brain is wired to look into our environment to see if there's any threats. So you could argue our brain's job is to kind of like filter through our brain and see if there's any threats in there. But it wouldn't just fabricate. Okay. It says the memories happen when I'm awake and I sometimes also dream about them. Sometimes when a memory creeps up on me, I get physical sensation too. Like when I remember the time that my mom called me a selfish little bitch. Oh, I'm so sorry. My cheek begins to sting like I've been slapped. Is that even a real memory? It could could be. We'll talk about that. Another memory is of me locking myself in the bathroom to get away from my dad and him breaking the door down so that he could get to me. I always feel really scared when this memory comes up, but I can't remember what happened next or why I'm scared. I'm so confused and also incredibly conflicted about how I should feel towards my parents if they did do these things to me. How can I determine whether these things are real? If it is real, how do I go about forgiving my parents? Can I just stuff these memories back down and hope they don't keep coming back? Will this change the relationship that I have with my parents? Should I mention it to my psychologist even though I sought her help with my or sought for her, her help with my PTSD? Yes, bring it up to your therapist. Um, we don't tend to make up or fabricate memories. What you're experiencing when you feel um, like the sting on your cheek, like you were being slapped, I would call that a body memory. Often we don't have like full uh, recollection, meaning like visual, audio, full memory. But our cells, like our body keeps the score is a book by Bessel van der Kolk, and it's a great book. Um, it's essentially that. It's like we have cellular memory our body remembers what happened to it. And because the, these memories popped up when you were dealing with your other traumas, I would I would trust them. But you can do a little research. Tell your therapist about them and have them ask you about it. Say, I'm not really sure and it feels like I'm kind of making them up and I don't know where they're coming from. I, I, you know, I never had these memories before. Let your therapist ask you questions about it. Let's do a trauma timeline, like a, a potential trauma timeline. Let's just be a little curious. We don't need to know right now if this all was true or it all happened, um, but I will tell you that research proves that we can trust our repressed memories. So my gut is that yes, this stuff did happen, um, but let your therapist walk you through it as you learn about these past experiences that you had repressed, okay? Take your time. It's okay. It's okay to be confused. It's okay to be frustrated. Talk about it, journal about it. Let's work it through little by little. Um, because I think those things did really happen. And we want to give your brain and your body time to come around to it, to understand it, and to move through it. Um, now, we'll, how do you go about forgiving your parents? One thing at a time. Right now, my goal would be for you to come to terms with your memories that are coming up and allowing yourself to feel how you need to feel. Just acknowledging that. That's really, that would be my main goal. Now, Determining whether these things are real, I mean, I would trust your memory, but it can also help to ask a sibling, or if you feel comfortable asking a parent, ask someone, maybe an aunt and uncle, sometimes someone who's a little, like, wasn't involved directly in the potential abuse, they'll remember. Like, even talking to my own brother, who's, he's like three and a half, almost four years older than me, we have totally different recollections of things. I'll remember part of it, and he's like, well, yeah, but don't you remember, I was already there, I was doing, and I'm like, oh, I forgot, you know, 
So ask somebody who might have also been there, who might also know. Is there anybody else in your memories that you can think about? And I know that doesn't work for everybody, but just throwing it out there. Um, you could ask your parents directly too, if it feels okay. Um, but that's how you can kind of determine, do a little fact checking that way. And then could it change the relationship with your parents? It totally could, but it doesn't have to. It kind of just depends on how you feel about it, how you're able to process it and what the relationship is like now. You know, if you need an apology or you need them to acknowledge it, you know, that could be part of it too, but you'd have to figure out what it is you would need from them. But again, that's your relationship with them and that's completely your choice. If it's safe for you to be in a relationship with them now, I don't see any problem with that. Um, but it's kind of up to you as to whether or not you want that relationship as you maybe discover things that might not be so nice and lovely. Um, but yeah, please mention to your psychologist, they will help you work through this and come to terms with what's coming up for you. Um, and then, yeah, you can check your facts with someone else. Maybe they have a better memory or maybe they can also affirm what's coming up for you. That can be really helpful in healing. Okay. Hang in there. It does get better. And also I'm glad you have a psychologist helping you with PTSD. We find often that when we start processing one trauma, it can remind us of others and more will, more will come up as we try to process one because they're usually stored in our brain they think in a very sim- like in the hippocampus is what a lot of people hypothesize but trauma memories usually stored together so that could be why this is like triggering those other ones as well okay thank you all so much for listening i hope that the, my answers were helpful i hope that gave you a little insight or just something to think about have a wonderful wonderful rest of your week thank you for sending in your questions and for sharing this podcast it really does help Take care of yourselves, do your homework, and I'll see you next time. Bye.